Amen. Take your Bible, if you would please, this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter number 22 and verse number 31. Luke chapter 22 and verse number 31. Luke 22:31. The passage of Scripture that I'm going to read today always makes me think about my second day of fourth grade. Now, I'm sure that most of you probably don't remember your second day of fourth grade. But my second day of fourth grade is a core memory for me. It is burnt into my brain forever. The little elementary school that I went to, there were two fourth grade classes. And I can remember going to my first day of fourth grade not knowing which class I would be in. Would I be in teacher A's class or would I be in Miss Waldrop's fourth grade class? And being selected to be in Miss Waldrop's fourth grade class was like getting your draft number to go to Vietnam, okay? Miss Waldrop was assembled by the North Carolina Department of Education from leftover female prison guards from the North Carolina Department of Corrections, all right? She ate nine-year-olds for breakfast. And whose fourth grade class do you think I ended up in? Miss Waldrop. And my first day of fourth grade went by, as far as I know, um, without any kind of incident. But on my second day of fourth grade, we had a spelling test. And on our particular spelling test, we had to not only spell all of our vocabulary words correctly, but we also had to put them in alphabetical order. And so you started with the words that began with A, get all of them in order, then B, and so on and so on and so forth. And so she hands our test, puts it down on our desk, and she tells us, when you're done with the test, come turn it in to me. And when you're finished, you can leave and you can go to Spanish. That was our next event for the day, to go to learn Espanol in La Biblioteca. And so, and that's all I got. But I look at this and think, okay, at this point, I've been speaking English for, you know, nine years. This is going to be no problem spelling these words correctly. And so I hammer down, finish my spelling test, and I just strut up to Miss Waldrop's desk place my test down, and she looked up at me with her black dead eyes, and she pulled out a purple ink pen. I remember thinking at nine years old, oh, purple, that's a happy color. And she began to mark on my test. By the time it was done, it looked like something Picasso had painted. She turned it back around and slid it to me and said, try again. And at the top of my spelling test, was a bright purple 29. I did not say a 79. I did not say a 69. I did not say a 59. A 29. The worst that you can do is an F. I had made like a K minus. <laughs> and it took me, it took me going back to Miss Waldrop's desk three times before I ever got out of class that day. That was a test that I really, really needed to pass. It was a test that I thought I could pass. But it was also a test that I actually needed to fail. Because in the fourth grade, I won our school spelling bee. And I made it all the way to third place in the county spelling bee until I got knocked out by pollen, P-O-L-L-E-N or I-N. See, I didn't know either. I still don't know. It was a test that I needed to pass, 
but I actually learned more because I failed it. Some of you are at a moment in your life spiritually right now where you feel like God is putting an unreal amount of pressure. Or maybe you don't think it's God. Maybe you just think it's life that's putting an unreal amount of pressure on you. And you're at a point where you are are trying to make a decision. Which way do I go? What's next? What should I do? Should I step out and stretch my faith and follow God into what seems unknown? Or should I just stick with me and stick with what works? And you feel like you're facing that test. Are you going to pass that test or are you going to fail that test? Some of y'all feel today, looking at your life, the way I felt looking at that big purple 29 on my spelling test. You feel like a failure. Because you've come through the test and you failed it. You weren't faithful to God. You haven't obeyed Him. You've let Him down and you've let yourself down and you wonder, is there anything on the other side of failure for me? The text we're going to read today, we are going to read about Simon Peter taking a test that he really needed to pass. But he actually needed to fail. Look with me in Luke chapter 22 and verse number 31. Jesus is speaking and He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now look ahead to verse number 54, same chapter, Luke 22, verse number 54. Verse 54 says, Then they seized him, that's Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. By this point in the life of Simon Peter, he's been following Jesus for something close to three and a half years. That's over 1,100 days where he's been walking with Jesus, following him, learning from him. And in that time, he has learned a lot. He has learned how to preach sermons that move people. He has learned how to do miracles that astound people. He has learned how to manage massive crowds. He has learned how to do so many things from watching and observing and participating in the ministry of Jesus. But the one thing Peter has not learned yet is Peter has not learned how to fail. In fact, if you would have asked Peter, Peter would have said, I'm beyond all that. I'm beyond failure because Peter was a winner. Peter would have said, look, there's two kinds of people. There's two kinds of disciples. There are winners and there are losers. I'm a winner. He says as much in this passage of Scripture, doesn't he? When Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, no, no, Lord, listen. Listen, 
these other losers, but not me. I'm with you to the bitter end, Jesus. I am a winner. But while Peter's mind is on winning, Jesus' mind is on what's going to happen over the next few hours. Because the scene that we've read in this passage of Scripture occurs at the very last supper of the Lord Jesus. This is his last meal before he's crucified. So his mind is on the nails in his hands. His mind is on the spear in his side. His mind is on the agony of Gethsemane. His mind is on the fact that in less than 24 hours, his broken, mangled body will be laid in a tomb to grow cold where he lies dead. Peter and the other disciples, they're thinking about their own self-importance about how great they are. The Bible says in Luke chapter 22 and verse number 24 that while they sit at this last supper, just hours before history and eternity collide in the work of Jesus at Calvary, the Bible says that the disciples sit around and have a conversation about which one of them is the greatest. So in other words, at the last supper of Jesus, after they have their banana pudding for dessert, I don't think they eat that at Passover, but whatever. One of them, with his belly full, leans back, he says, guys, I've just been thinking about something. I really am more important than y'all. I mean, you know that, right? Like, I'm the smartest one, the most handsome one. I'm the best preacher. I'm the most faithful, the most outgoing. I've got the best administration. Listen, I'm, I'm greater than all y'all. What? How could you possibly think you're any more important than me? Oh, yeah, well, it's not hard to understand why. Look at me. Look how great I am. You are out of your mind. In the middle of Jesus' overwhelming agony of the cross, these guys are only thinking about themselves. And then in the middle of that conversation, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, you are about to be trapped between heaven and hell. This is where we start to see Jesus prepare Simon for the test he's about to fail. As he warns him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you. It's interesting that Jesus uses his name twice, right? It's interesting for a couple of reasons. One reason it's interesting to me is because this is something that God would do in the Old Testament. Abraham, Abraham, take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and go to a mountain that I will show thee, and there sacrifice him to me. Moses, Moses, do not come any closer. Take the shoes off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. He speaks to the boy preacher, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. But in each of those situations, God was calling those people into a life-changing, cataclysmic moment of faith. And here Jesus may be doing the same thing. But who is it that really is going to hold the mirror up to Peter's life to show him who he is. It's Satan. Satan has desired to have you. And what's really, I think, important about this is that Jesus does not call Peter, Peter. You know, Jesus had changed Peter's name three years earlier. And he refers to him as Peter. You are Peter. You are the rock. But now he refers to him as his old name. Simon. Simon. Reminding him, Peter, don't forget who you really are on the inside. Underneath all of your self-reliance and all your self-confidence, Peter, don't forget who you still are. Satan has desired to have you. Now, that is a scary statement, isn't it? Satan has desired to have you. And I think I should ask you, 
as I meditate on Peter's plan, or the devil's plan for Peter, Satan's plan for Simon, I need to ask you, have you ever thought about what the devil's plans for your life are? Now, I know you've got plans for your life, right? I'm going to quit preaching in a few minutes. I'm going to go eat lunch. And then because we don't have church this afternoon, you know what I'm going to do? Oh, let me tell you, I'm going to go lay in the air conditioner in my short pants. And I'm going to take a nap for the glory of God. And I'm going to wake up tonight, and I'm going to take my dog for a walk. And I'm going to chill out. Tomorrow, I'm going to come into church in the morning, do a little work. I've got an appointment at 12 o'clock across town. I'm going to go there for that. I've got plans. God has plans for your life. You know that, right? Now, God's plans for your life are probably not the same as your plans for your life. God's plans are often backward, and God's plans are often mysterious, but God's plans are always right. This passage reminds us that Satan has plans for your life. What are the devil's plans for your life? I can't tell you specifically because I'm not the devil, believe it or not, and I can't speak for him. But I do know this, that the devil wants to damn every person under the sound of my voice. That the devil wants to make sure that you spend eternity apart from God in a place called hell. But the devil knows that if you belong to Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior, he knows that he can't send you to hell. But he does want to put you through hell until you get to heaven. And the devil wants to rob you of your joy. The devil wants to steal your peace. The devil wants to attack your assurance. The devil wants to disrupt your family. The devil wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what Jesus says to Peter here. Have you thought about what the devil might be up to in your life? You should. And here's why you should. Because Satan's activity in the life of Simon overlaps with God's activity in the life of Jesus. Think about this. This was not an accident that Jesus was going to be betrayed. It was not an accident that Jesus was arrested. This is not a, just a fluke of history. This was God's eternal plan for the history of the world. This is the moment where the past and the future come together in the reality that is established in the resurrected, crucified Son of God, the Lord Jesus. None of this caught God by surprise. None of this is accidental. This is God working out His will for Jesus, who is the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. But in the darkness, in the dark corners of God's plan, the devil was lurking. And he'll do the same thing for you. When God wants to stretch your faith, the devil may use that circumstance to cause you to recall in horror and step away from God. Where God wants to lead you into forgiveness in a broken relationship, the devil wants you to retreat into anger and the bitterness. Where God wants to transform you, the devil wants you to cling to those old ways of thinking and those old ways of being. The devil is at work in the dark parts of God's will. Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you. That he may sift you. Now, Peter living in the world that he did, immediately picked up on the agricultural metaphor that Jesus gives here. And since we don't live in that world, it's not as immediate to us. But when he's talking about sifting, he's talking about separating the chaff on the outside of a kernel of wheat from the actual usable edible kernel inside. When wheat is harvested, there's the part on the inside that you can grind down and process into flour or frosted flakes or whatever. And then there's the shell that you can't do anything with, the chaff. To sift wheat is to remove the chaff from the wheat, and it involves two things. It involves a process called threshing, and it involves a process called winnowing. Threshing is where, in different ways, but you apply some kind of pressure to the kernel of wheat 
to pop the kernel of wheat away from the chaff. Pressure to separate. And then after there's threshing, there is winnowing. And in Jesus' day, typically they would have a giant winnowing fork, like a big wood pitchfork. And they would stick it in a big pile of wheat, throw it up in the air, and the wind would blow through, and it would blow the broken chaff away. And then what would fall to the ground would be the kernels of wheat they could use. In other words, he says, the devil wants to apply pressure to you, and he wants to create distance between you and Jesus. He wants to crush you. And in crushing you, he wants to separate you from Jesus. I think there's a profound lesson in that for you and I. That the devil wants to utilize and use moments of great pressure to cause increasing distance between ourselves and the Lord Jesus. That's bad news for Peter. But that's not the only news Jesus gives him, is it? He gives him good news in verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Y'all didn't hear what I said. (laughs) But I have prayed for you. While the devil wants to crush you, Peter, I have prayed for you. When the devil wants to separate us, Peter, I have prayed for you. Saint of God, hear me today. That no matter how much pressure you feel in your life right now, whether you feel like it's just the circumstances of your life, whether you feel like it is the devil attacking you, or whether you feel like it is the mysterious plan of God, our Savior has prayed for you. No matter where you are in the cycle of failure, even if right now your faith is slipping through your grasp, our Savior has prayed for you. And even if you're on the other side of failure and you feel like you've gone so far, listen, if you know Him and He knows you, our Savior has called out your name today. In fact, I'll say this, no matter what you're facing, what you're carrying, what you're fighting, or what you're going through, if you belong to the Lord Jesus today, He has called out your name to His heavenly Father. You say, well, Brother Jesse, I hadn't prayed in six months. He's prayed for you. Say, Brother Jesse, I'm here in church today and I'm backslid as a devil. Jesus has still prayed for you. You say, I came into church today and saw those other people lift up their hands and I didn't feel a thing. Well, I'm going to tell you what Jesus was doing before you got out of bed this morning. He was whispering in the ear of his father, saying, Lord, help them. Lord, bring them back. Lord, fix them. And the beauty of this, the beauty of this is not just that Jesus intercedes for us. The beauty of this is that even before Peter could see his own failure, Jesus saw to the other side of it. He said, Peter, I have prayed that when you are strengthened, when you are converted, when you get all straightened out, that you will be able to straighten out your brothers. Peter, you might think that you don't need my prayers, but Peter, I'm praying, and in my prayers I can see to the other side of where you are headed. But of course, Peter says, thanks but no thanks, Lord, I've got it. Lord, I don't need your prayers. Don't don't worry about praying for me. Lord, I can handle this. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Lord, if the ship's going down, I'm going down with you. Everybody else may run, but Lord, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to die. I'll be right there with you to the bitter end. Peter. Peter, the rooster's not going to crow to signal the dawn of a new morning. You betray me three times. Peter has been between heaven and hell. But as you move into verse number 54, you find Peter between a rock and a hard place. Because the Bible says that Jesus has been seized and led away. Darkness has settled 
into Peter's life. In fact, I think it's fair to say that Peter is not living in the same world in Luke chapter 22 and verse number 54 that he was in Luke chapter 22 and verse number 24 when he was sitting around the table talking about how great he was. Because now he lives in a world where Jesus has been betrayed by one of their friends. He lives in a world where this man he believes is the Messiah has been led away in handcuffs. He lives in a world where Jesus can be corralled and controlled and led away to what appears to be certain death. And Peter has to watch all of this. But the Bible says he watches it from a distance. Now on the one hand, you can't blame Peter for following at a distance. Because if he gets too close to Jesus, what would happen? He'd be spotted. And if he was spotted as Jesus' right-hand man, he would be arrested. He would be put on trial. And then he would be executed. But I think when the Bible tells us that Peter followed at a distance, I think that it's telling us something about Peter's spiritual condition. There's never a good thing to be said when distance comes between us and Jesus. Never. And yet here there's distance between Jesus and Peter. I think when Peter denies the Lord, this is one of the first primary reasons because there's distance between them. And so honestly, in your heart right now, is there distance between you and Jesus? Have you gotten so far away from him that you can't hear his voice? You drifted so far that you can no longer follow his steps? You're still hearing his word? Still communicating with him? Peter followed, but at a distance. Y'all, the devil's in that distance. Of course, I think Peter also denied the Lord because he didn't pray. So, Brother Jesse, I don't see anything about praying in this passage. Exactly. But in the verses we skipped over, the Bible does say that in Gethsemane, Jesus told the disciples to do what? Watch and pray. Why? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And what did they do? Buddy, they did what I'm going to do this afternoon. They crashed out, right? They're tired. Could you not pray one hour? No. No, Lord, we couldn't. Our spirit was willing, but our flesh was weak. If you knew that the devil hated you and wanted to destroy you, would you pray about it? He does. Third, I think Peter denies the Lord because he's warming himself by the wrong fire, right? Instead of being with Jesus, he's with the people that at least are in some way complicit with wanting to put Jesus to death. And he sits in the courtyard on a cold spring morning and late evening, and they build a fire, and Peter's warming himself. <sighs> See what's going to happen to Jesus. And then Peter, who just a few hours ago was bragging about, Lord, I'll never deny you, man, I'm ready, let's, let's do it. Charge hell with a squirt gun type stuff. Now the Bible says that a servant girl comes to him. And I'm not being classist and I'm not being sexist, but a servant girl. It's not exactly the most threatening person in the world. But she comes to Peter and she says, I know you. You're one of his followers. You were, I know you, you're, uh, no. Mm -mm. It's not me, I don't know him. Don't know anything about him. I don't even know what I'm doing here, really. No, it's not me. And 
then somebody else comes along. Yeah, I know you. I was there when he healed that leper. You're his right-hand man. I was right there. I was there in the garden when they arrested him. I know you. You're one of his. You know, I get that all the time. I've just, I just got one of those faces. It's like people say that to me all the time. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's just one of those. But that, no, I've, I've, I've never met him. Then about an hour later, somebody else comes back and says, Oh, yeah, you do look like one of his disciples. But it's not just that. It's the way you talk. You got that hillbilly accent, man. You can't get away from it. You're from, listen, at you, listen at the way you elongate all of your vowels and slur your R's. You, you're from Galilee. Man, look, you could listen. You'll hear this, right? He's from Galilee. And then Peter, Luke does him a favor here, but the Bible says that Peter curses. Now, that does not mean that Peter said a bad word. What that means is that Peter called down a curse on himself. Let me be cursed. Let what's happening to him happen to me if I know him. And this is why Peter denies Jesus. Because Peter is more concerned about Peter than he is Jesus. And you can't blame him, right? Because at some level that that need to be safe, that need for self-protection, self-preservation takes over. And Peter's only thinking about what do I have to do to live? What do I have to do to see another sunrise? What do I have to do to get out of this situation? Peter is only thinking about Peter. And I would suggest to you that while it was Satan that wanted to sift Peter like wheat, that the real chaff that Peter needed to be delivered from was that. That self-referencing, self-trusting, self-righteous, self-promoting, self-reliant thing in him that made him head over heels in love with Peter. That's exactly what he needed to be delivered from. And the only way that he could be delivered from it was to fail. That's the only way he would ever get out of it. Was for him to realize Peter's not as great as I thought he was. Peter needed to have the mirror of failure held up to his face so that he could see how ugly he was. And how beautiful Jesus was to him in the middle of his failure so that he could break up with Peter to really love Jesus. Now, if you would have asked Peter, he would have told you, yes, I love Jesus. And he did. And I think he was sincere. But he really loved Peter. Boy, we love ourselves, don't we? I mean, we, are, I mean, we love Jesus, sure. But we are head over heels in love with us. And sometimes we need to fail these tests so that we break up with ourselves and really commit to Jesus. Frankly, some of y'all need to break up with yourself and quit dating Jesus. You know what you do when you date somebody, right? You spend an hour or two with them on the weekends like you're doing right now. You need to break up with Jesus, or you need to break up with yourself, quit dating Jesus, and go all in on following him. That's what you need to do this morning. That's what this text of Scripture is calling you to do. It is calling you to break up with yourself and commit to following Jesus. This is what Peter needed to be delivered from. You do know that this is what Jesus is saving you from, right? Jesus is saving you from you. If any man will come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself. This is what it's all about. It's all about Jesus rescuing Peter, not just from the devil, not just from a difficult circumstance. It's about Jesus rescuing Peter from Peter. No, I've never met him. I don't know him. And Jesus looks at him. Now Peter is trapped 
between his past and the future. He's failed the test. He thought he was ready for it. It wasn't a pop test. It wasn't a surprise. Jesus told him it's coming. Jesus tried to prepare him for it. But he wasn't ready. Because he was trying to take care of himself. There's almost nothing more hard to see, at least for me as a grown man, than another grown man weeping. The Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter knew. He knew that he had failed. He knew that he had disappointed himself. He figures he's disappointed the disciples. And he's disappointed Jesus. Peter knew. And Jesus knew. And Peter knew that Jesus knew. And that is the dagger in Peter's heart. That Jesus knew that he was not faithful. And this happened just before sunrise on Friday morning. And we don't know where Peter went when this event was over. But he went out somewhere to weep bitterly, broken by his own failure. I don't know what Peter did on the day Jesus was crucified. I suspect, based upon some things he would write in First and Second Peter, that probably Peter disguised himself and stood in the crowd at the crucifixion where nobody could see him. And for maybe a few moments, he watched Jesus on the cross. I wonder if he stayed until the end, though. I wonder how long he could stomach it, knowing that he had not been faithful. And I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that sometime around 1.30 or 2 o'clock, Peter, sick to his stomach, goes to probably the upper room where he's staying, trying to hide. And just waits. By 4, 4.30 that afternoon, the knock comes. Peter dreaded. Peter, it's over. About 3 o'clock, Jesus, Jesus died. Peter shakes his head. What about, what about the body? Oh, um, Nicodemus is going to see what he can do. Joseph of Arimathea, he's going to give him his grave. He's not going to be thrown into a mass grave. Peter says, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, Peter, Peter, take care of yourself. Watch out. They're after you too. Yeah, I know. He shuts the door. and He's probably so sick he can't eat supper. I can't imagine that he'd be able to. Maybe that evening he tries to go in bed. He lays there and tosses, turns, filled with sorrow over what he had become, filled with sorrow over what had happened to Jesus. Friday night turns into Saturday morning. Peter thinks, what am I going to do today? He tries to stay busy, tries to occupy his time as much as he can for it's the Sabbath and there's not much happening. Maybe he woke up Saturday morning thinking, this was all a nightmare, it was all a bad dream. And that was the first thought in his mind when his eyes opened Saturday morning, but then he thought, no, he really is gone. Saturday turns into Saturday night, and Peter says, tonight I've got to get some sleep. Peter lays down, 9.30, 10 o'clock, stares at the ceiling. He rolls over, stares at the wall. 10 o'clock becomes midnight. He looks at his watch or whatever, and thinks, his sundial, and he thinks, if I go to sleep now, I can get six hours before I have to get up, and that'll recharge my batteries enough 
to help me figure out a new plan. 12 o'clock becomes 1 o'clock, five hours. 1 o'clock becomes 2 o'clock. Peter thinks, well, maybe I can rearrange my morning a little bit on Sunday and sleep in till 8, I can still get six hours, I can get refreshed and maybe face the world without Jesus. Maybe Peter starts to drift off about 3.30 or 4 o'clock that morning before the sun comes up on Sunday. But then, a little while after the sun comes up on Sunday morning, Peter, get up! Peter! And Peter says, what in the world is happening? And Peter stumbles down the steps, and Peter opens the door, and there stands John the disciple. Peter, you look terrible. Listen, Peter, go get dressed. Get your shoes on. We've got to go. What are you talking? Peter, shut up. We've got to go. Because Mary and a couple of the other ladies, they went to his tomb. Peter, he's not there. And Peter, Peter, they don't know if somebody's taken the body. They said there was an angel Peter, you've got to get dressed. We've got to go. Peter, I'm going to go without you if you don't get dressed now. You've got two minutes. Peter, we're just going to run for it, and we're just going to go. And Peter limbers up and loosens up, and off they go. And when they get to the grave, they find out that, sure enough, the stone's been rolled away and the grave's empty. And when they find the women, the women tell them this. It's Mark chapter 16 and verse number 7. They said that the angel told us, that he is not here, for he is risen as he said. They said to tell you guys, his disciples, to go meet him in Galilee because he was going there before you. And they said this, it's Mark 16, 7, this is what they said, tell his disciples and Peter. Peter, he hadn't forgot about you. Peter, he's not done with you. Peter, your failure is not the end of the story. Peter, I know that you think you've gone so far that Jesus has nothing left to do for you and nothing left to say for you. But those angels, Peter, they had something specific from him to say to you. Why? Because for those people that know Jesus, their failure does not have to be final. And sometimes it is in our failures that we learn the greatest lessons that help us be more faithful in the future. You see, for Peter, it happens like this. Peter realizes that Peter ain't that great. But he realizes that he has a Savior and that that Savior is the hero of the story. That none of this is about about Peter, but every bit of this is about Jesus. That even if Peter is not faithful, Jesus is faithful. That even if Peter gets it wrong, Jesus always gets it right. That even if Peter is afraid to die, Jesus has conquered death. That even when Peter is wrapped up in his sin, Jesus redeems his people from their sin. The beauty of this story The beauty of this story is that the cross Peter rejected and the cross Peter resented, that at that cross where the Lord Jesus hung on that Friday for six hours, the Lord God of heaven looked at Jesus and said the same thing about him that Peter did. He said, I do not know him. And God turned away from Jesus so he could turn his face to sinners like Peter who have failed, who've made a mess of their lives, who need another chance. And he would go into death and conquer death for them and come out the other side saying, failure does not have to be final. I remember the second day of fourth grade. That big 29 with a circle around it. And I remember at nine years old feeling like my life is over. I thought, this is it. This is as low as it's going to get. I've disgraced my ancestors. I've embarrassed my family. They're going to kick me out of school. 
And I'm going to be in the fourth grade for the next five years. And I had no way to know at nine years old that there were a whole lot more tests coming. I had no idea that there would be more education, that there would be employment and careers and a wife and children and a mortgage. I had no idea about any of that because that failure in that moment was so real and so powerful that I thought I'll never be able to recover from this. And you know how that feels, don't you? Not just on a spelling test, but you know how it feels in life. You know what it feels like to let yourself down, don't you? To be like Peter and to make promises and to say, Lord, I'll serve you forever. And to break those promises. And you know what it's like to disappoint God. As you've said, Lord, wherever you send me, I'll go. And then it starts to get awful easy to sleep in on Sunday mornings. And you can't even get the Lord to send you to church. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? We've all been there. We've all struggled with that. And the devil who tempts us and says, hey, this sin's not that big of a deal. On the other side of it lies to us and says, God will never forgive you for that. Well, let me tell you something today. Our God is a God who forgives. Our God is a God who not only gives second chances, but our God is a God who has taken our failures and he's buried him in his empty tomb. And our God is a God who says to all of his people, even when you failed me, I will not fail you. And it may be that God now has let you fail so that he can redeem that failure and use you in greater ways as you realize, I'm really not that great. I really can't be trusted, but he can. I really don't have it all together, but he does. I have no idea what I'm doing, but the Lord does. Well, there's more to the story, but for that you'll have to come back next Sunday. But thank God there is more to this story. There can be more to your story too. I know some of you do not believe it. But I'm here today as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ telling you that if that tomb is empty, there can be more to your story. There can be more to your story. You say, Brother Jesse, how do you know that? Well, because I've done worse than fell a spelling test, I promise you. I know that because it's true for Peter. I know it because it's true for me. I know it because it's true for David. Those verses that Ken read at the beginning of our service in Psalm 32, he wrote those after he had an affair and had the man, her other, her husband killed. But he said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sins are covered. I know it because over and over again in this blessed old book, I find story after story of people who failed and who made a miserable mess out of their life, and whose life story became nothing but a litany of mistakes. And yet God was there in His faithfulness to them, saying, we'll pick up and we'll dust off and we'll keep going, because He's good and He's gracious. Let's stand together now, or I'm going to preach all afternoon and never get my banana pudding. And I'd, I'd like, if we could, for just a moment today, let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And I just want to talk to you and pray with you for just a second. Before we dismiss, I wonder how many of you right now would say to me, I feel that the devil is at work in my life. In other words, I feel like there's pressure on me that's trying to separate me from Jesus. Would you put your hand up? I see hands going up all over the building. The devil, it feels like, 
is trying to hijack my life and separate me from Jesus. I see your hands. You can put those down. How many of you would be honest and admit that if he comes with everything he's got, you can't handle it? And that you're not strong enough to defeat it? Sure. How many of you could be really honest today and say, I failed him? I failed. And I want to be forgiven. Like Peter was forgiven. I see your hands. Let's pray now. Father, you know our frame, but we that we are but dust, and you know that we are sinners. God, you know how much we need you. Lord, some need you today because they feel that they are experiencing pressure of temptation to pull away from you. And Lord, it could be that those who are unaware of it are experiencing it to the greatest degree. And God, I pray that you would strengthen all of us. But God, it's not about our strength. Help us to see that, that our strength comes from you. You are strong while we are weak. God, for those that have failed you, Lord, I pray you would give them hope that their story is not over. Help them, Lord, to look to Jesus and be forgiven and made new. Lord, we ask for that grace in Christ's name. And amen.